Good morning, church. It's a delight to be back here at Heritage. Um, I got up at uh, 4.50 this morning. Um, just got back after teaching at Word of Life Bible Institute. There you go. There's some Word of Lifers. I tell people I got my IQ from Oxford, but my EQ from Word of Life. The, uh, just the passion to teach uh, students. Uh, some of you know our missionary, uh, Steve Nichols. I was in one of, I'm on the board, so we had a conversation. It's amazing, uh, a report that he gave of what God is doing in and through some of the people we've sent from our church here at Heritage. <clears throat> um, I was supposed to speak last week, but then Pastor Nathan uh, said, hey, Chris, would you speak this week? Uh, I just got back, so I turned around and my wife said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to worship God. Uh, how can she say no to that, you see? Um, but I, I'm so thankful for this church and uh, the fact that I could come and minister, be part of, uh, I don't know what he calls it, a strategic teaching partnership that we have. Um, I also was in a Zoom call with some of our folk working in Vladivostok, Russia, where I go every year. And there in that border, we actually have people both from Russia and Ukraine mixed together. So you can see how difficult it is for families to relocate. So thank you for praying. These are very, very important uh, needs that we have. I was uh, driving and uh, I thought there's nothing on the way so I can really press hard on that gas. Uh, when I found there were several sleeping tigers on this road. I thought Sunday morning, no one's there, you know, especially when you come to Hammerst, you know, it's a very dangerous place to get a ticket. Um, it reminded me of the guy who was uh, speeding and the, the cop was waiting for quite some time and eventually saw this guy speed and he got him and he said, you know, I've been waiting a long time for you. And he said, officer, I came as quick as I could. <laughs> uh, he still got the ticket. Um, this morning, when I was thinking uh, of what to speak, oh, there it is, um, I have been doing a series with uh, the training of national leaders, and we have a challenging situation uh, at this time. Uh, hunkered down uh, with travel bans, we have always struggled, how do we as missionaries uh, be involved or engaged when we can't actually physically go? to these places. Uh, we have been almost uh, two and a half years now in this pandemic. I hope they run out of Greek alphabets. Uh, God has been gracious, and I am so thankful after all the vaccines and masks because it's about loving others as much as we love ourselves. I am looking forward to in two or three weeks in spring break to go back to Pakistan. Uh, again, to bring news, uh, three or four weeks ago, some of you may have heard one of our pastors we work with was actually gunned down by a terrorist and killed coming out of the church, Pastor Siraj. And I'm hoping to go to Peshawar, to his hometown, encourage his family. And these are things, we live in a very, very serious world. And uh, when going through the book of Hebrews, this whole thing about Jesus being our empathetic high priest but also we drawing near to God. 
made me think of several themes that I want to talk to you this morning on, particularly this important balance I believe we need to maintain between intimacy with God and involvement in His Word and world. Intimacy with God and involvement in His Word. I think there's a struggle in people like uh, me and workers when is it that we need to be aggressive and agitated or even impulsive? Uh, and when is it we need to be still and know that God is in control? And I think all of us this last two years have gone through this what I call creative tension between how involved should we be, especially with restrictions, and how intimate we need to trust in God's sovereignty and let Him work. Um, the other thing I'm facing in the field uh, is the training of women leaders, particularly in Asia. Uh, the emergent of, emergence of women as leaders. Uh, so we, did, we started a series on Mary of Bethany. I didn't know that the women's retreat will also focus or juxtapose Mary and Martha. Uh, maybe interesting points that I like to point out in this passage that we're going to look at. But let me introduce this by reading for us. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and I want to read from verse 38 onwards. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38 in your Bibles. Luke 10 and verse 38. Now, as they were, went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus, notice this, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet, at the Lord's feet. What was she doing? Listening to his teachings. And then we see the contrast in the next verse, verse 40, but Martha was distracted, preoccupied, with much serving. Not that she just served, with this distraction of much serving. She went up to Jesus. Imagine this. This must have been a little bit uh, awkward. And she said to him, Lord. She addresses him as Lord, kind of indicating this was a believing family. He says, don't you care? Don't you care? Wow, I kind of shudder when I think of those words. This is the one on whom we are supposed to cast all our cares because he cares for us. And Martha saying, don't you care that my sister, and underlying this word, has left me, has left me to serve alone. Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing, one thing is necessary, is needful. And Mary has chosen the good portion. It's actually the superlative, which means the best portion. And by the way, it will not be taken away from her. This is one of the three passages mentioned in the New Testament of Mary from Bethany. I found it most intriguing that all three passages have Mary at a certain posture in relation to Jesus, namely that idiom, at his feet. Mary 
at Jesus' feet. So that's what I've entitled this uh, message this morning, Mary at Jesus' feet, in order to understand this creative tension and to determine priorities for us. We live in a very anxious world. Even embedded in the word pandemic is the word panic. I think more than anything else, the world has been so stressed out this last two, two and a half years. It started with a global medical crisis. And then for us in the U.S., it became a political crisis with bipartisan and change of God in the White House and so on. That ended with all kinds of racial crisis of what kind of lives matter. And then with that critical race theory and intersectionality, the church was woke and we had this cancel culture, Me Too movements, and I got caught up with all that theologizing. And we eventually are now facing a kind of an economic crisis, which again gives us concern. But I believe that the greatest crisis, particularly in America, is the domestic crisis we are facing with the fragmentation of the family. The family. And I find in these three passages, Jesus at home. And that got me thinking. Coming originally from Asia, missing my family, having the names of at least 1,000 Christian workers, personal names of 100 Christian workers. 100 that I personally knew who died the last two summers in India, alone, a hundred. I knew who died in the pandemic. And nobody, by the way, Pastor Rob is replacing that. This is, this is a deep concern. So we live in all these tensions, but there's something else I've learned during the pandemic, at least the last two summers, hunkered down with all the travel bans, Apart from the importance of the family, I realize the simple truth that less is more. Do you know what I'm talking about? Less is more. It's amazing how much money we save just not going to conferences. I've become a zombie. And we're all screenagers, aren't we? And you realize, wow, we spent a lot of money. Hotels and accommodations and conferences. Not that that's not important, but I've learned that less is more. Two words have become part of our vocabulary, certainly Dorothy's and mine these days. One has to do with decluttering. You know what that is? Stuff, junk, that we need to get rid of. And the other one is downsizing. Less is more. Think of those two words. But of the many things that we do, in this passage, Jesus points out from the words of Christ comes this that many things are important, but only one thing is essential, is needful. I wonder what that one thing is. I somehow like setting priorities. The older I grow, the many assignments have been given to me and the multitasking that I have to endure. Ask me, how do I prioritize? Again, English not being my first language, I always try to look at words and what it means. The word priority literally comes from that contraption of that little word prior, a prior, before, first, 
before anything else. And I wonder, what is this before anything else that Jesus wants us to do? What is this priority, the number one thing? If you get everything and you lack this one thing, at the end, you have nothing. Well, what is that one thing? Well, we're going to look at that because Jesus very clearly and categorically defines and teaches on this one thing that's needful, the one thing that will not be taken away. By the way, a lot of things have been taken away, including life, which calls us again to prioritize this one thing. What is this one thing? I believe Mary from Bethany gives us not just the answer, but sets the model for us to emulate when it comes to this one thing. It is the main thing. And as you've heard, the main thing is to keep this main thing as the main thing. What is that? Tell us, Mary. In fact, show us, Mary. Well, it shouldn't be difficult because the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 even from the womb, the Hebrew child knew, Shema Israel, Shiro Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you've got to love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength with everything you've got. The lawyer who wanted to trap Jesus and asked him that question, which of the 613, you know, commandments is, is number one, which is the priority? And Jesus looked at him and said, you love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, with everything you've got. But then notice how he kind of rivets to it, stitches to that. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. He shows that love in this sense is not just a narcissistic self-indulgence. It is something that should be reciprocated. We love because he first loved us. I like the way Paul puts it in the argument with the Judaizers who emphasize issues like circumcision and keeping the law. Remember what Paul writes in Galatians 5 and verse 6? I love that verse. He said, what really matters? At the end of the day, what is it? What's the bottom line? What is it that counts? You know what Paul says? It's faith expressing itself in love. If you don't have this love for God that reciprocates in loving others, we really have nothing. In three familiar pericopes or passages in this text, I see Mary demonstrating this one thing. And may I invite us this morning in church to reevaluate as we try to balance this Christian life as we try to focus on the many things that keep bombarding us, I wonder if we're losing the one thing, being distracted by many other things so that we end up with nothing. Well, let's look at this first story, I think, which is quite telling about Mary. Three simple points today, all with that little phrase, at Jesus feet. All three times we read about Mary from Bethany, she's always found at Jesus' feet. 
That's what drew me to these three passages. All the time. You read about this woman. She's at Jesus' feet. What is she doing? Why is she doing what she's doing? Think with me. First of all, I submit to us that Mary discovered this place of love at Jesus' feet. This passage in Luke 10, beginning from verse 38, is very, very significant for the author, Ruth, Luke, when he's writing, uh, on, for two reasons. This is, this is unique to Luke. No other gospel records this story. So Luke finds in his history and research very critical to insert this at this stage. But I also ask myself, why did he insert it here and now? And if you see the context, especially from this chapter 10 for the next 10 chapters till 19, is what we call didactic. Jesus is teaching constantly, instructing. But he kicks it off with a model for his message to say, listen, why I have so many things to say, get this one thing. Just there are some things that are better caught than taught. And in this passage, unique to Luke, just as Jesus begins his last semester. Did you know that? My wife just started her last semester finishing a doctorate at Baylor. I'm telling you, all of us create space for her now in our home. Make sure she finishes her doctorate. She pushed me through mine, so I've got to push her through hers, I think. So guess who does the dishes? I don't know why I'm going there. But anyway, so we, we're looking at this, and we're like, this is the, the last six months of Jesus' life. Well, a few things about the characters in their roles, if you may, in this passage. Notice with me Martha's house. A few things about Martha that comes to my mind. If you look at the pecking order, she's always listed first implying she was in charge. The possessive pronoun Martha invited Jesus into her house tells me that she was in charge. Maybe she was a widow because women really didn't go out and work and earn money and maybe she inherited this after her husband's dead. I don't know. One thing I know, she was in charge. Any of us have elder sisters? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? They think mom died and put them in charge. Uh, how many of you are elder brothers or sisters? Yeah, yeah, you know, we are in charge. So you can get the Martha syndrome here. She's in charge. By the way, ladies, let me talk to you. How many of you have cooked for 13 men on Sunday? There you go, one or two. It's a daunting task, isn't it? Are you relaxed? No, I don't think so. I know this because... My mom used to cook for all my friends. Once she told me, just slow down on this evangelism stuff. <laughs> because every time I lead them to Christ, I invite them home. She's like, how many are coming this week? I said, 19. She says, can you slow down on this? So it's not easy. And you're talking about Jesus, his 12 disciples, and of course, Lazarus. At least 13 men. And you know what happened to men after service? Guess what happened to me after this service? I'm hungry. So I can understand Martha being distracted. Says, Who's going to do this? Now, let me ask you a second question. How many of you have siblings when there's work to, done, to be done, 
They want to go and read the Bible and pray and have their quiet time with Jesus. Any of you have that? I have a brother like that. I hate him. Like, why can't you get up early and do this? Because now I've got to do it. Well, you can understand what's going on here. I don't want to burst the bubble for our women's conference. And I don't know if you're going to study the book on Mary's heart in a Martha's world. But I don't really fully subscribe to that stark characterization or disparity. I don't think we can pigeonhole people into either that or this. I don't think Mary, as many of our dear Roman Catholic friends and orders, make her to be the contemplative type, full of grace. I don't think so. I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, it says, Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet, doesn't tell me that that is the only thing she did always. She didn't take a vow to say, I'm only going to sit on Jesus' feet. Secondly, if you notice, and I asked you to underline, the text says, Martha comes and says to Jesus, tell Mary, she has left me. Now, let me ask you. If someone says, where's the Nyanakin guy? And you look out and you say, his car has just left the church parking lot. What does that mean? I was here, and I left the place, implying Mary was with Martha, and she left her at that time for something more important, for a priority. The third, of course, is Jesus' own words. He commends Mary to have chosen not just the good part. That's a poor translation. It's the superlative. The best part. And he says this will never be taken away from her. Don't ask me to do it. She's going to do what she's doing. So on all these three counts, you know that this caricature of saying Martha type, Mary type, sometimes could be too stark. I think it bleeds into one another. Certainly there's an emphasis or an augmentation of one or the other. The other thing I want to quickly mention is that what Jesus did to Martha we must be careful not to think that Jesus just shouted at Martha for being busy. No! Jesus did not rebuke Martha for working. He reprimanded her for worrying. There's a big difference. Work is ordained of God. Hospitality is mandated. I mean, my mother believed that when we show hospitality, we could entertain angels. And some of the people who came as angels to my home, I don't know, they were slightly fallen. But anyway, you know, show hospitality. Romans commands it to us. So nothing wrong with that. And the word used here for welcomed is a very strong word. Martha, in the superlative sense again, welcome, upa ad agdakamos, to, to say, come on in, the warm-heartedness. She even addressed Jesus as Lord. Did you notice that? So what is wrong, church? Here's my point. You and I can be very busy doing things for Jesus that we often miss being with Jesus. Intimacy always precedes involvement. 
In fact, involvement stems out of intimacy with God. This idiom, Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet in rabbinical literature, and of course, English language, when you sit under someone's feet, like Paul sat under Gamaliel's feet, that posture is one of learning. And I hope we come to church where the Word is something we don't just sit under, but it draws us to the Lord. We worship. We encounter God in His Word. Beyond the sacred page, I see thee. And Mary understood that. Notice how. Number one, by listening to Jesus. This is not just hearing what He said, but assimilating that truth. Making it a priority. One of my biggest fears, and I was in another church last week speaking, and it was, the pastor was so worried. He says, now people are so used to not coming to church that it's difficult for them to make the effort to worship God. I'm glad it's not like that in heritage, but many churches are struggling. Worship is no longer a priority. To meet with God becomes another choice, an alternative in our Baskin-Robin culture. I don't like that flavor. I prefer sitting at home and watching. Mary was there at his feet, lingering. Hold on to that word because I'm going to show you love that tarries. He is, she is learning. She had made her choice. Church, there are times when we need to carpe diem, seize the day. Opportunity knocks. People say, Nyanakin, why are you booking your tickets and applied for your visa to go to Pakistan now? They just killed a guy. I said, this is the time that I need to show solidarity with my people. Not relax in America. That's why I'm called. You are not called, but I, that's why God called me. It counts to show what our, pri well, is, is that a risk? Yes. That's how you spell faith, R-I-S-K. Mary's going to risk more than this, but there she is. She realizes God's best fruits lie low, and she is at his feet, listening, lingering, learning in his presence. Did she understand more of what the psalmist said in Psalm 16 and 11? In thy presence... There is this fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You see, Martha has lost the joy of serving. Now she is complaining. I would have expected she went behind Jesus and said, Come on, I need you. She says, Jesus, don't you care? You see what happens when we haven't spent time with Jesus? We react and ruin a lot of things around us. <clears throat> I think this book is out of print, but one of my favorite books by the mystic A.W. Tozer is Nearness is Likeness. Did you know that? The more near you are with someone and spend more, you tend to become more like them. How about this, church? Let me quickly go to the next 
point where we see Mary. I'm not going to read the text in its entirety. But I want you to turn to that passage in John chapter 11 this time. Because when you and I spend time in Jesus' presence, lingering there, learning at his feet, trusting him, everything is going to be all right. Right? Let me repeat that. When we spend time with Jesus at his feet, learning, listening to him, trusting him, everything is going to be all right. Right? Wrong. Your brother dies. So my second point, the place of love is not only discovered at Jesus' feet, there are problems. Just because we love Jesus doesn't mean we're not going to get the coronavirus. Just because we love Jesus doesn't make us immune to the trials of life. Church, that's prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, Jesus told us, in this world you will have tribulations, John 16. He told, Paul wrote to Timothy, all who live godly lives shall suffer. Be careful during times like this. If you think that, I love Jesus, I listen to his word, I go to church, nothing's going to happen to me. People die. <clears throat> you know the story. They sent word through Jesus, and they say, Lazarus, whom you love, has died. It doesn't use the word agape, it uses the word phileo. It says, Lazarus, your friend. You know, I think about Jesus. Jesus did not have too many friends. He certainly didn't have much of a family. He came unto his own, John 1.11, and his own didn't receive him. That's why he spent time at Bethany. I like Jesus. He, he's always going out to eat. And this was one place he liked to go, sit down, and it was family. It was home away from home. They sent word to him. This friend you have. What a friend we have in Jesus, right? Lazarus is dead. Now, what does Jesus do? He books the next flight, and he... No. He stays another two days. Now, he's in another Bethany, by the way. It's almost a day's journey. And uh, this Bethany, which he always stopped, is about, a, if, you, if, you, if you, you know, Israel's background, you see the temple, you go down the Kidron Valley, you go around the Mount. All. This is a very, just an ordinary village. In fact, Bethany means house of the poor, unlike Bethlehem, which is the house of the bread. So, they sent word, and Jesus waits two more days. What sense does that make, church? I don't understand it. I come to this passage, his friend, the only male breadwinner in that culture, in that family, is dead. And Jesus waits for two more days. I love the old English word, love that tarries. Love that's willing to wait. In church, we don't have that kind of love today. 
We have an instantism. We want what we want. We want it now. But God calls us to, invites us to be in this love that sometimes we wait, we tarry, like many of us have done during this pandemic. We just wait. Does Jesus love me? Do you know? I wonder if Mary had doubts. Why the delay? Does the delay mean denial? Have you faced that question? Does delay mean denial? Just because God doesn't turn up doesn't mean he doesn't want me to. Have you been, in Philip Yancey's terms, disappointed with God? I have. I've been disappointed with God. He doesn't seem to keep his appointments, I think, because I scheduled him at a certain time to turn up, and he didn't. Hmm. You know the story, so let me say this. Notice Martha's response when Jesus eventually turns up four days later. You can almost see her put her hand on her hip and say, if you had only come, she's in charge, remember? My brother wouldn't have died. What took you so long? Do you really love us? And Jesus is like, where is Mary? And Martha actually goes, Mary's in the house, and says, Jesus has come. You know what Mary does? Very interesting, read the passage. She comes, weeping, and she falls where, church? She falls at Jesus' feet. There she finds the problems of love dissolved, at Jesus' feet. It is in the context of Mary weeping that we read that Jesus was moved, and we read the shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? Jesus wept. That was the response to Mary at his feet. Broken and spilled out. Jesus wept. He shows solidarity with loss. Have you lost someone? I've had so much of loss this last two and a half weeks. I have co-workers whose wives have died, and I can't wait to go back to Nepal. I told you the story when I was here last night. But there she discovers, in contrast with the, the love for power, she discovers the power of Jesus' love. Why didn't Jesus come quickly and heal Lazarus? Church, very simply, Jesus didn't do the lesser so that he could do the greater. Let me say that again. This whole passage is about the glory of God that brings great joy in the context of someone who's willing to linger in love. Our disappointments are actually God's appointments. His delays are not his denials, by the way. Mary will discover Jesus does care. And you know what else they will discover as a family? He is in control. Take me to the tomb. Roll the stone away, and he talks to a dead guy who's dead for four days. His spirit in Jewish tradition is gone. Weird. He's no longer lingering. And he says, Lazarus. Can you imagine people at the graveyard talking to a dead guy four days? This is the last public miracle that Jesus will do. 
It is the miracle that imbibes faith in all who observe. It is a miracle that produces the assurance that he can bring back to life. It is a foretaste of his own resurrection that gives his disciples the hope, because I live, you shall live also. The gospel is seen in the power of God when Mary is at Jesus' feet. You know why we don't know? We're not still. Be still and know. The last thing I want to leave you with this morning is this incident where Mary defies all the Jewish traditions and does something that is so inappropriate. Certainly not according to propriety for a woman who makes this beehive and it says it's six days before Jesus' crucifixion. And Mary makes this beehive. This is chapter 12, verse 1 to 6. And she brings this alabaster box. You remember that? Of spike nard. That nard comes from India, by the way. That nard is taken from deep roots and squeezed into this viscous thing surrounded with certain spices that makes it so potent. In fact, it cost her a whole year's salary. Think of your W-2 and how much you earned last year. That was how much it cost Mary. So what does she do? She comes and she anoints Jesus' feet. No time this morning, but the stark contrast is not Mary and Martha or the disciples and Jesus when he comes to die, but this time it's none other than Judas and Mary. Here we see church extravagant love, love that lavishes itself on the object of devotion. What does it cost us to come to church? Seriously. Our religion is only worth what it costs us. What really does it cost me? Three hours to drive from D.C. this morning? Is that it? I have pastors in Ethiopia who walk three days to come to our training. Three days to sit under a tree to learn God's word. Wow! What does it cost us? Mary shows the costly service. Lazarus is there. I guess he's a silent witness. Or maybe Martha didn't let him talk. I don't know. But anyway, Lazarus is there but demonstrating this act of costly service becomes at least three things for me, a sign of gratitude. Why do we come? To say thank you, Lord. My Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. But do you honor him by giving him your service, like Martha did, your substance, or giving your whole self? You see, our money is ourselves in minted form. When you give a whole year's salary, you're giving your energy and effort for that whole year. That's why it's important to give. And we are never more like God than when we're giving. Mary anoints Jesus' feet in spite of the criticism to show her loving service. Love is a verb. It has to be demonstrated. I wonder whether Jesus experiences love from heritage. You know, people come back and say, it was a great time of worship. 
by which they meant I felt good. I remember our two daughters. One was uh, a, a very cute one who liked Barbie dolls. So wherever I went to Africa, Singapore, I brought her dolls, and she'll dress her up and you know, curl her hair and stuff. And one, once I remember, I was standing somewhere, and Karis ran and came and hugged my thighs, and like, Daddy. I was like, are you all right? I said, what happened? She said, you know the Barbie doll you bought me? She said, I've been hugging it. It doesn't do anything. I thought, if I came and hugged you, you'll hug me back. I wonder how God feels this morning. Mary of Bethany at Jesus' feet breaks all the codes of women in public, lets her hair down, the glory of a woman, and shows where it belongs at the feet of Jesus. Mary at Jesus' feet, the proof of love must be displayed. Because all those crowns we get, we will cast, guess where? Where we will be casting our crowns? At Jesus' feet. Good place to be. At Jesus' feet. My time's up. Let me pray and ask us a few questions. Oh, what happened to that? Does it go? Did I press something? Oh, there you go. Let me just say this in pulling this together. Church, thank you for paying attention. Jesus memorialized Mary's love. She said, everywhere the gospel is preached, they will tell of Mary at my feet. And guess what? We're doing it this morning, aren't we? I wrote down here something that one of my teachers, Warren Wisby, who passed away last year. I remember Warren Wisby telling us, beware of the barrenness in a busy life. Beware of the barrenness in a busy life. Things are opening up. We're going to get busy again. Don't forget the most important thing. It's faith expressing itself in love. I've worked in about 32 countries. I've never seen a country like America where people are so busy and barren and bored at the same time. Think of that. One of my Korean friends defined an American. An American is someone who buys what they do not need with money that they do not have to impress people they don't like. I mean, think of the stuff we do. One thing is necessary. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done this for my own death. I have a theory. It's only a theory. Knowing how pungent and strong this ointment was, you know, when I put some of these uh, perfumes, or uh, what do you call those, the aftershave stuff, it's very funny. Sometimes Dorothy will tell me, two days, you haven't still taken that off from your face, have you? I was surprised, because some of these things last quite a long time, especially if they're expensive, obsession type. I have a theory. I believe when Jesus was hanging on that cross, nailed You could smell the aroma from Mary's expression of faith demonstrated in love. Those wicked soldiers 
with the rugged nails, I believe would have smelled. Now, there were a few women who brought ointment. Remember that? And embalmed Jesus' body. Remember that? How much of that did Jesus smell? He was dead. Church, let's express our love for Jesus while we can. It's only just a minute. 60 seconds in it. I didn't seek it. I didn't choose it. Yet it's up to me to use it. I will suffer if I lose it. Give an account when I abuse it. It's only just a minute. But eternity is in it. Time. I told my daughters, when I die, I like that epitaph, Mary's epitaph, to be on my gravestone. Chris Nyanakin. 1964 to whatever, just that little phrase, he has done what he could. Isn't that a good epitaph? If people could say, Nyanakin, there's one thing we know about this guy, he has done what he could. That's what Jesus said of Mary of Bethany, always found at Jesus' feet. Shall we pray? Father God, in this busy world, still our hearts, Lord, bring us to the foot of the cross. May we, our lives, be a sweet-smelling Savior to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.